Hey, would you um, would you just show your appreciation for the worship team this morning? Um, I grew up in a bit of a clap happy church where we clapped for uh, pretty much everything, and um, we don't often do that. But um, something you don't know is uh, Rob Collins, who usually leads worship for us, his wife um, had a fall yesterday, and she's in the hospital. So if you could be praying for Julie. Um, she's okay, uh, but they're running some tests on her. She blacked out, and they're not sure why, and Rob just asked for prayer. So the decision was made probably at 10 o'clock last night or sometime early this morning that, uh, that Ben would step in, and uh, we're just blessed to have a worship team that can, can adjust and go with things, but um, keep the Collins family in your prayers, if you would. Um, listen, uh, one other thing, kind of before we dive into the message this morning, is that uh, Ben and I had the opportunity this last uh, week with our wives to head up to Hume Lake and be at a pastor's retreat, and it was so powerful to just um, be in a room with probably <clears throat> a couple other pastors from around California, Arizona, Nevada, and, um, and just get poured into. And the guy that was speaking up there uh, is a guy that spoke at Hume Lake when I was in high school. And they started a church two weeks before NBC started uh, up in Washington somewhere. And so it's just kind of neat, their story and what's going on. But so powerful to see this man of God just continuing to, um, to be who he says he is and, and to see the gospel taking root uh, in the lives of his people up, up at the church that they've started. And then uh, the worship leader as well is a guy that, um, that was leading worship back when I was in high school at Hume Lake, and it was just an awesome thing. So we were blessed to do that. Listen, I have not done this yet, but we need to dismiss our kids uh, this morning from worship. Kids, we love worshiping with you. Adults who care for our kids and love on our kids, thank you. Uh, we love it, and uh, you're appreciated. Listen, if you, um, if you would take out your notes, you were handed notes this morning, not a bulletin. We're going cutting edge. Uh, it's a very green move. We just have a single piece of paper. And um, so pull your, pull your notes out and, and follow along. And um, let me just tell you where I want to go this morning. If, if I had the opportunity, um, really my, my desire today is this, that everyone in this room would be so utterly convinced of this life-altering truth that we're about to read in the portion of Scripture that we find ourselves in this morning, um, that it would shape literally every decision for the rest of your days. That it would go so deep down into you that you are unshakable in your, um, in your conviction about this. Uh, here's the problem. Um, I can't. I can't do that. Although I have a desire for you to have this kind of conviction, um, I don't have the ability to allow you to possess that. That's really something born of God. And I, I kind of view my role this morning as this. I'm a little bit like a midwife who's seeking to give birth to that kind of conviction in our people as a church. What a midwife can do is set the parameters and kind of set things up and assist and kind of move things along. But midwives don't give birth to things. That's a miracle of God. And really, that's my prayer as we go into Ephesians 1 some more. Um, I want you to understand that as I've been studying Ephesians 1 now for several weeks, it's just been, uh, so, my brain's just been soaking in it. Um, so many songs. We're up at, up at this pastor's retreat, and almost every song. In fact, Ben and Laura probably got sick of it, but I'm like, Ephesians 1! I mean, it was all over this song. Don't you see it? Da, 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 da. And you go through just so many of the great hymns of the faith that have been give, gifted to the church. Ephesians 1. There are so many profound truths that we are about to look at. I want you to think for a moment about the word belief. And I believe that 
I believe, that's cute, that the, that the word belief or the idea of belief is in a recession. Here's what I mean by that. I don't have notions that just because things were old and from a different century or different generation uh, that they were automatically better. Uh, you know, people are people, and we see that in every generation. However, there was a time, I believe, when, when someone said the idea that I believe it, it meant something more than now. I believe that there's a, a certain sense of, um, of sub- subjectivity, if you will, to today's version of the word belief. And I'm going to toss out to you the notion, the idea that conviction might be a better term. Let me tell you what I mean by the word conviction. Uh, Certainty, assurance, sincerity, passion, fervor. Could those words be attached to what you believe? Absolutely. But I think the word belief kind of is uh, is fading, and, and I'll show you what I mean in a second. The idea of conviction is this, that you're so convinced that you will take a stand on this thought, ideology... Uh, that no matter what happens, you'll stand on it. You're so convinced by it. You have this deeply held conviction. I think this is particularly true in when it comes to spiritual matters. Uh, tell me if you can track with a conversation something like this. Maybe you've been talking to someone, I have, and we're discussing things, and, um, and I've tossed this question out before. Hey, um, what do you think happens to someone when they die? That's kind of a fun conversation starter, huh? And oftentimes, people will respond with, oh, I am a, and then they will list some sort of religious category that they are in. They won't really start to define what they believe about that, but they'll, they'll say something. Let me toss it out. I'm, I'm Catholic, and so I believe this. I'm Muslim, so I believe this. I'm Christian, so I believe this. Here is a follow-up question that I want to equip you with, or maybe you already have and you, and you hold on to. But to even know where to go with that conversation... Here's a great question. Are you practicing? So someone says, oh, I'm a Catholic, and so I believe this or this. And then I say, well, are you a practicing? And they say, oh, no, not really. It was something my grandmother passed on. I'm Hindu, and so we believe this or this. I said, well, are you practicing? Um, no, I, I mean, I'm kind of nominal. If they say, yes, I am, then what, then what we see is we see kind of this merge of belief and conviction into one. But if you say, I believe this, this, and this about where someone goes when they die, where someone goes when they die, if the Bible's right, I believe it is, obviously, that's a massive question. That's a massive thing to be considering. And yet people will toss out this idea that, oh, I believe this, this, and this. But the follow-up question of, are you practicing, really gets to the heart of it, of, are you convinced? Are you convicted by this? I want to just point out a couple of people that many of you know from, uh, from the scriptures, Old Testament heroes. And I want you to think about the idea of kind of an easy believism that, that can kind of come and go, subject to change if something better comes along, or deeply held conviction. How about Daniel? Daniel gets tossed into a lion's den because he had such deep conviction about the truths he had built his life on. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Same thing, willing to put their life on the line for this. How about young David? Young David had such confidence in his God to deliver that all these army men are shaking in their boots and little shepherd boy David says, our God will deliver us from the hands of this Philistine. Who's he to call out our God? Conviction. Acted on what he believed. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 1.12, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed Here's these two words in one sentence. And I am convinced 
that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You know the context of what he was talking about? Suffering. Paul was saying, this is why I suffer. Not because I just believe in it, and if something else comes along and kind of shades it, I'll change. But I'm also convinced by this. April 20th, 1999, a young girl by the name of Cassie Bernal, 16 years old, handed a note to her friend, Amanda Meyer. Here's what the note read. Honestly, I totally want to live my life completely for God. It's hard and scary, but totally worth it. That same day, later on at school, she died for that statement. Another person shot that day at Columbine High was Rachel Scott. You know what Rachel Scott wrote one year earlier in her diary? Here it is. I am not going to apologize for speaking in the name of Jesus. I am not going to hide the light God has put in me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. Conviction. 16 years old. Living out what they believed in. Unmovable. Taking a stand regardless of the consequences. Is conviction important in our life? Yeah. In the life of every believer, it's important. But conviction isn't enough. On the eve of September 10th, 2001, 19 men read from a letter written in Arabic that said this, Be obedient on this night. Because you'll be facing situations that are the ultimate and would not be done except with full obedience. When you engage in the battle, strike as the heroes would strike. As God says, strike above the neck and strike every, from everywhere. And then you will know all the heavens are decorated in the best way to meet you. These men went on to die for what they were convinced of. These 19 men were men of conviction as they flew planes into assorted targets on U.S. soil. If not for the conviction that Flight 93 was headed for yet another target, that plane would have probably met another building. But for the conviction of some people on board that plane, that flight was thwarted. Do you see how conviction and belief are all around us? Life and death kinds of things that we look at. This morning we're talking about reality. Really how you perceive reality. What's really real. How you work through truth. The things we find in Ephesians 1 are massive to everything else we do as a church. And I really do believe that this morning's message... Last week's message, next week's message, this part in Ephesians 1 really can alter the course of your life. For many of you, you'd always say, you would say it already has. I want you to do something that we did all week long at camp, and, and he did this back when I was in, uh, as, a, as a youth leader at, at camp. Um, but in honor of God's word, Dewey Bertolini, whenever he would speak, he would have everyone in the audience rise in honor of God's word. So this morning, I'd like you to stand up with me. And we're going to read from Ephesians 1, starting in verse 7, and we're standing in honor of God's Word this morning. I'm going to back up to verse 3 just to carry the thought out from last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And I'll, and I'll stop there. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful that you have a plan, God, and that you're sovereign. And this morning, people have walked into this building. We have gathered as your church, as your people, perhaps as seekers, as worshipers of a God that they don't know yet. But Lord, we're here to discover truth, to think on reality. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would shed light on your truth, that your truth would affect our lives and that we wouldn't impose our truth, ourselves, on your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I spent a good deal of time this morning just in opening, beating on this idea of belief and conviction. I believe it's important um, because there's a, there's a possibility that this morning I could preach about Jesus being the redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and having it just blow right by us. We live in what's called a Christian nation, which if you've grown up here, might be a little bit laughable, especially in our area of the country. Um, if the South somewhere is the buckle of the Bible belt, I'm not sure what we are, but we're not near the Bible belt. And so, uh, and so whenever someone comes and, and thinks of us as a Christian nation, sometimes I need to set them straight and say, all things American are not necessarily Christian. But it's easy even in our city to be able to hear certain basic truths, foundational truths of the Christian faith, and let them blow right by and think that we embrace them, think that we live by them, think that our lives are founded on these truths. When perhaps, on closer inspection, we'd realize they aren't. Until you and I are convinced, meaning such deeply held belief that it informs our values and actions, of the truth of the gospel found in Ephesians chapter 1, you and I will be susceptible to being, as to use biblical terms, to being tossed here and there. By every new sounding idea, every new doctrine that comes along and kind of sways us over here and then sways us back over here. Uh, Ephesians 4 and James chapter 1 touch on this and they talk about being children in doctrine. What I want you to be this morning is not children in your doctrine, but I want us as a church to be growing up in our doctrine, being sound in our doctrine. For some of you, you've been at the Christian walk a long time. Maybe this will be reminder. Maybe this will be affirming. But, but for several others of you, you're brand new to the faith. You just started cracking open a Bible this last year. 
And so what I'm wanting to do is establish for you and say these are the things that are cornerstone, foundational to building your Christian walk on. Don't get sidetracked by all these other winds of doctrine and things that people like to discuss and argue about in the church. Get these down solid. Here's part of the cornerstone of the Christian faith that we find in Ephesians 1. Here it is. God has a plan. God has a plan. That's, that sounds really simple, but it's massive throughout this, and we'll look at the language shortly. But he's revealed this plan. It's not just that God has a plan, and we always are constantly going to wonder. He, is, <clears throat> he has divinely revealed to us the mysteries of his plan. That means it's knowable. We don't just throw up our, guy, our hands and say, well, let truth be truth. God's just doing his thing. We're to seek after it. God's revealed his plan to us. The blazing center of his plan is found in a person. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you go to the very center of the bullseye, you would find the cross of Calvary at the very center of this plan, this redemption plan that God has been working. The plan of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. The plan of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. That one single sentence, I've chosen it very carefully, that one single sentence summarizes what I want you to see in Ephesians 1. God has a plan, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see how elementary this is? Do you see how on guard we have to be this morning to say, oh, I've heard this about a gajillion times. Thanks, Dave. How about something that's relatable to my life? We could breeze right by this. And miss the gem God wants for us. God has a plan. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the kicker. To be in sync with this plan, to be in sync with this person, is to be in the very center of God's will. Thereby experiencing all these blessings that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1. Starting with grace and peace. Moving on to every spiritual blessing that He's blessed you with in Christ. You see, in Christ... That's what I mean to be in sync with this person who's at the center of God's plan. Foundational. Core to everything else that follows in the scriptures. <clears throat> Without answering or raising your hand, uh, I just want you to chew on something for a second. If you could get to the very heart of why you're sitting here today, what would it be? The question is this, why do you come to church? Why do you join a community group? Why do you participate in community group each week? Why, do you, uh, why are you active in charitable kinds of things? Why, why do you come to church functions? Why do you pray? I would say this. Um, it might be easy to give the good churchy answer because we're in church and that seems like the right thing. You're like, I think it's because God has a plan and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that it? <laughs> but if we dig a little bit deeper, here's what it might be. I can remember very specifically sitting in my Clap Happy Church, which I love dearly, by the way, um, and I remember that we had three services in the morning and there came a point in my life where God opened my eyes to his plan. God opened my eyes to the person of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, going to church every other week because my Christian side of my family went to church on that week and I lived with them on that week became not something I did because I lived under that roof and kind of my payment for a room and board there was that you went to church on Sunday mornings. It was not a democracy. It was a dictatorship. That's how it went down. And I remember 
things switched up such that I think my high school group was meeting on one week and or on one of the hours of service and, and I was serving in another. And so it meant going to church, sitting in big church all by myself. And it wasn't there because my parents would watch me. I wasn't there because of all these other things. I was there because God had called me and God had drawn me to himself and opened my eyes. And you know what I longed to do on Sunday mornings? Sit with God's people under the teaching of the Holy Word of God. Now, this was a brand new experience for me. I can show you still to this day all the little nooks and crannies to go hide out when you didn't want to be in church. Because I did them. I helped wear the paths that are there right now. And here I was sitting as a high school student in church. And it was a strange experience for me because I hadn't experienced it before. But I was in church because I wanted to know God. I wanted to worship God. I wanted to know more about God. And that was a brand new idea for me. People get married for a lot of reasons. People go to church for a lot of reasons. Some people might go to work to church because it works in the immediate. In the short term, things have gone desperately wrong and they turn to the church. Say, I need to go find a fix. Maybe God will do it. It's kind of like rolling the dice and saying, I'll just I'll try this out. I'll try other things. Might as well try church. Some people go to church because it's the best idea that they've heard so far. In other words, you know what? I can't really make out a lot of the mysteries of the universe. I don't have any other answers. This is the best one that's come along so far. Some people go to church because people are accepting. You know what Christians ought to be doing? Accepting people. Loving people. Welcoming in the forgotten of society. Socially awkward? Go to a good Bible-believing church. You will be accepted there. You'll be loved on there. Have a hard time making friends? Kind of an abrasive personality? Not accepted elsewhere? Go to a church. I mean, really, if we're on mission, we're going to be the most welcoming group of people. And by the way, I'll tell you this group of people is that. I love you guys. It's amazing to watch you um, just do that. I love that people mistake who the pastor is around here because other people are off. I just watch it. I watched it last week. While I'm eating the welcome lunch, I see another person, arm around that person, just praying with them. Brand new visitor, first time here. Ministering. Being the people of God. I love that about this church. That's the reason you go to church, though. I'll get to it. Here's another one. It feeds my spiritual curiosity. I'm always, I'm always interested in what these people believe. I'm going to go check out church. Or, I, I think I might believe some of this. I, I think there's some truth here. I'm going to go just kind of hear what someone has to say about this. People go to a church. We could, we could spend a lot more time, I suppose. <clears throat> but here's what I know. That when the storms of life hit, and not if, when. We all understand that if we've lived more than five minutes. When the storms of life hit, punch you in the face. Whether or not you will be in church the following Sunday has a lot to do with why you're coming to church in the first place. Why you've joined a community group in the first place. Why you pray in the first place. When new ideas come along, you'll be the first to slip out. When the emotional high of kind of camp experience or church experience or I got baptized or I had this amazing thing happen at church, God opened my eyes. When that wears off, Easy to slip out. Or, when you come because people are so accepting and such nice folks, and then you encounter other problem people, aside from yourself. Guess what? They're here in our church as well. Because we're all human. 
And so when you, when you encounter that, you bolt for another church. And guess what? You find them once again. Jesus asked this at one point. All kinds of people are leaving his church, so to speak, his gathering. He turns to the twelve and he says to the twelve, he says, Are you going to leave also? Who speaks up first? Just take a random guess. Simon Peter. That's it. Hey, there's a line forming for speaking up. Boom! Peter's just there. What's the subject? I'll talk about it. Here's Simon Peter. Ready? Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Why was Peter following Jesus around? Because God had a plan and he'd revealed it in the person of Jesus Christ. Who was convinced of that? Peter was. But he denied him three times. I know, and that's, that's, that's part of life this side of eternity, right? He also died for that belief. Was it a, a mere belief that could waver or a conviction? It was a conviction. <clears throat> How do you get to a place that is beyond what other people say in your life? For instance, your parents' faith. Or something that someone else has said that you tend to trust. And hold on to deep convictions. How do you go beyond a reasonable doubt that truth and reality that you've kind of built your life on are correct? How do you know this to be true? Let me throw out another quote that a couple of weeks after 9-11, Osama bin Laden said. He issued a statement that said this, I bear witness that there is no other God but Allah, and that Muhammad is his messenger. Does that not run contrary to what the God of the Bible would say and who his messenger is? It runs directly contrary. One side of the world was cheering and jeering at the fall, the fear, the hurt of America. Another side of the world was saying, God bless America, and crying out to God. I said that conviction wasn't enough. Conviction is only part of the story. Being convinced of the wrong thing is still the wrong thing and still leads to death. So when you have two competing ideas coming at you, two competing truths, what do you do? Parents, you ought to know this instinctively if you have more than one child or a child with split personality, I suppose. But if one comes and says, he did this, and they come and say, no, she did that. What you do as a parent is you ground them both. No, I'm kidding. Uh, sometimes I do. But, um, but you investigate. You investigate, right? You say there are two competing truths here. They both cannot be right. We live in a culture, by the way, that wants to say let's have everyone be right. Let's have everything coming. We don't really live this way, but for some reason we talk this way. Do you see belief and conviction? When we act out our convictions, they don't measure up to this at all. I don't feel right about this price for this car. You think the price is one thing. I think it's something else. I think we should both be right, and there's no real truth to find here, so I'll just give you the amount and you give me the car. That does not work on a car lot, ever. We talk about equal truths and just allowing everyone to be right. We don't really live that way, though. I put in your notes... Um, a part of Luke's gospel. Luke was a doctor. And in your notes I have Luke 1.3. I have carefully investigated everything. 
from the beginning. It's good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He was writing this on the behalf of a beneficiary who was, who was uh, funding the project for him to write this. Verse 4. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Conviction. He goes on in his sequel, uh, the book of Acts. He says, after his suffering, talking about Jesus, he showed himself to these men and gave, underline these three words, many convincing proofs that he was alive. Many convincing proofs. Luke was wanting to make absolute sure. Let me give you one more. We won't turn there, but go and read 1 John 1, 1 to 3. Just jot that down. The book of 1 John, chapter 1, 1 to 3. John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle, is saying this. Look, these things that we've seen and heard and touched with our own hands are true. You know what Luke and Paul and John and all these New Testament writers, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are wanting to drive into your conscience, into your soul, so that you're convinced of it? This is not a big story. This isn't a giant allegory or metaphor. These are historical, factual events that occurred. Build your life on them. Study them. Verify them. I wrote uh, this message originally in one part and turned it into two parts very quickly because otherwise we just would have been here for a little bit too long this week. So I'm going to give part one this morning and part two next week. It's a very simple outline. What did Jesus do? Why did he do it? What did Jesus do and why did he do it? We already talked about the idea of Ephesians. The logo one is this idea that God is bringing together. He's repairing. He's restoring all of the factions and all of the brokenness caused by sin. He's making things whole. Not just in the church. That's too small of a scope. Remember that? But universally. The whole universe. I was up at Hume Lake this week walking around going... God, your creation sings your praise. And not in some, uh, you know, elfy kind of a way, but I literally get to sing with the trees. I get to walk around and as birds and views that I take in and smells of the fresh mountain air fill my nostrils, I get to sing praises to you along with all that you've created. What a powerful notion that is. God is reconciling and restoring that which was hostile, that which was at at odds with him because of the fall. Last week, we talked about the idea that we are loved by choice, and it's God's choice. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. And that God's love begins with looking intently at our sin, looking intently at our utter depravity, Subjects which, for the most part, people don't even want to glance at. God says, oh, my love begins by staring at that, by looking deeply at your sin and your fallenness. Paul brings Calvary. I mean, he's, here's this praise. Um, it's almost like a praise chorus that he's singing here in Ephesians chapter 1. And right in the midst of it, he brings the bloody cross of Calvary right into the midst of it. Why does Paul do that? It was such a nice refrain, Paul. And then you brought up the cross, which 
not having had 2,000 years to kind of gloss over, buff up, shine, shine up, and kind of make into a pretty religious term, people reading this in the first century would have just said, whoa, why bring that up? Because after Calvary, think about Paul. Think about Paul being called and chosen. After Calvary, no one could say that God takes sin lightly. Now, I don't think he had to convince Paul of this much anyways. He was a pretty zealous guy in Judaism. But he knew that uh, after Calvary. After Calvary, no one could say that God doesn't love him. Paul was convinced. He was loved without a doubt. It was shown to him. It was manifested just how much God loved Paul. And after Calvary, never again was Paul condemned or bound by the sin that once entangled him and had him imprisoned. And so that's why as Paul writes time and again, what's at the very center of God's plan? What's at the very center of his praise? It's the cross of Christ. God is repairing all kinds of broken relationships in Ephesians, and it starts with the broken relationship between God and mankind, verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8, let me just read them again. It says, In Him, talking about Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. If you take kind of the prototypical redemption story in the Bible, you would look at the Exodus, back in the book of Exodus. And if you think about it, God had a plan in Exodus, didn't he? And he had a chosen servant, a person, Moses, to orchestrate and carry out this plan. In your notes, I have this, but there's Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not just a king ruling the strongest nation of the day, but he was actually worshipped as a god, an affront to the one true God. There was slavery going on. The Israelites were helpless to get out of the situation they were in. They had been held there against their will in forced manual labor. God raises up Moses. He chooses a servant who will lead his people to freedom. God then steps in with assorted plagues. And really you can kind of see the graciousness of God um, opening the door for things as it gets progressively worse. He begins to discipline the nation of Egypt through a, a series of plagues. There's one final horrible plague. The plague is going to be this. God is going to send the death angel to kill the firstborn of all the livestock and all the babies in the land. <clears throat> the way out for the Israelite people was to take an unblemished lamb, kill it, take the blood from that lamb, and do what with it? Paint it on their doorposts, right? Smear it on their doorposts. So literally, they're covered by the blood of the lamb. And as their doorposts are covered with the blood of this unblemished lamb, they are passed over by the death angel. They're spared and they're given their life to, to keep, to stay alive. God spares them. Let me fast forward. Um, mankind is a slave to sin. We all like to think about our freedom. We're a little bit like the Pharisees who pompously and piously say, we're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone. We might say in today's vernacular, I'm, I was born in the land of the free. I've never been a slave. The Bible teaches differently. The very nature of being a man or woman born on this earth is that you are, you are a slave. 
You're not born free. The very things that you want to do, you don't end up doing. You try time and again. And the very things that you despise and don't want to do, you fall into and you do. The Bible says it pretty simply. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin is a little bit like Pharaoh. Gods of lust and pride and bitterness and shame and selfishness hold people in slavery against their will. And if you want to take the parallel a little further, they're doing hard manual labor for their gods, little, little g gods. God raises up a servant. This is part of his plan. God raises up a servant in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes to free God's people. The end result of sin is death. There's punishment that awaits uh, the, the sin that we incur. Except for those who are covered by the Passover lamb. God's redemption story, which really began before Exodus, but is seen probably most fully in Exodus, foreshadows the big massive redemption story that opens it up beyond God's chosen people, Israel, to the whole world. God is unifying for himself a people. Such that John the Baptist, when Jesus kind of bursts onto the public scene, John the Baptist, who had been getting a little following as he was kind of a forerunner to the Messiah, points over and looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Do you see what would have just gone through all of these people's minds? Who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? I want to walk through some things that are, uh, again, these have the potential for you to be such review that you go, yeah, we, we know all this. But if it ever starts to lose its wonder, its mystery, if it ever fails to bring you to your knees and just say, God, you're so good. You're so worthy of a life of praise that I don't think you really have the meaning of it. Here's what Jesus Christ, the God-man, accomplished on the cross. Redemption. People are liberated from the mighty pharaohs of our life. The sin which so easily entangles us. And again, if you've lived five minutes, you know what I'm talking about. We have redemption. We've been liberated. We're free. Titus 2.14, talking about Jesus, says, "...who gave himself for us to redeem us." from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That was made possible by the cross. Not only redemption, but deliverance. Second bullet to fill in. He rescued us from sin's power, such that it will never hold dominion over you again if you are covered in the blood of the Lamb of God. In the same way that the death angel passes over, you're free from the shackles of being enslaved to sin. Look at Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. By the way, you're born into this state. The Bible teaches this. It's not something you made as a bad choice as a kid. Every one of us is born in sin. To use a graphic picture, we're still born. <coughs> We're born, but we're dying from the day we were born. And apart from the work of God, we'll remain in that state. 
Colossians 1.3, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have, there's that word again, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that the body of sin, that which we were born with, might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Redemption, deliverance, and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the pardoning of our wrongdoing. Past, present, and future sin. Not just sins that we commit, sins of commission, but sins of omission. Things we should have done today that we didn't do. Why? Because we're born in sin. We appeal to the flesh and not to the spirit. This illustration was used of, uh, what if you took a rock and just started to make a pile of every single sin that you committed? How big would that pile be? And with each passing moment, that pile would only grow, would it not? Such that it would be this massive thing. And then to look at that rock pile as a condemning picture of your sin. Here's the challenge to that. We all gloss over certain things because we meant well. So we couldn't even get that pile right if we tried, could we? We couldn't even draw up all the sins that, that, that we commit or omit because of our flesh. Forgiveness. Um, we put up nine, Hebrews 9.22. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this was instilled by God under the, uh, under the law. And Ephesians 2.13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How is it that we're brought near? Because us and a holy God cannot coexist, cannot be in sync cannot be one, as the Bible uses in married language, husband and wife, apart from the forgiveness of sins. That's why the word forgiveness is so massive in the Christian faith. Let me take you back to the Old Testament one more time. The Day of Atonement, there's two goats. One goat is sent away into the wilderness. In fact, the, one of the words forgiveness literally means sent away. And that goat is sent into the wilderness to kind of symbolically carry Israel's sins away. It was called the scapegoat. And a second goat was sacrificed, symbolizing that sin costs a life. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Think about Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, both of those lambs are fulfilled. He's both our, our scapegoat and our sacrifice. And it was His blood that paid the price, not ours. One more under forgiveness. Colossians 1.20. It's in your notes. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. The blood of our dying Lord is held so precious to every Christian because we understand this one clear fact. 
It should be our blood being poured out for the payment of sins. I mean, it's a creepy thing for an outsider, I would imagine. I've been going to church most of my life, so I don't really, I haven't had the shock of this. But I've seen it on people's faces as I've, as I've walked them through the gospel. The shock of why all this blood talk, all this celebration of blood and singing in the blood, it's kind of gruesome. It's kind of radical to be celebrating that. Why? Here's the why. Because we understand that it's our blood that should be, that is required. And Christ is our substitute. That's why we celebrate Jesus dying on a cross. But we don't leave him there. The Bible doesn't leave him there. God didn't leave him there. The plan was that he would rise again on the third day. And so we celebrate an empty tomb that goes hand in hand with an empty cross. People put their hope <clears throat> in all kinds of other things. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just hit four to say there is no other hope. I want you convinced of this. I don't want you to waver in two years. I want you convinced of it. That's going to require more than a 40-minute message on a Sunday morning, isn't it? It's going to require you searching a matter out. If you haven't established that this is God's Word, go do the research. There are some great books out there that have helped me. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell was a great book for me in early college. It's written a little bit like a textbook, so you have to pound through it. Case for Christ, Case for Faith, written by Lee Strobel. Some great books that start to touch on, on the verifiable historical evidences of the Bible being God's Word, of Jesus being who He says He was, of the resurrection. <clears throat> There's no hope in purgatory. Purgatory is the teaching that... Uh, that you get to enter into a state between death and final judgment. The Bible says it's appointed a man once to die and then comes judgment. And no amount of suffering and kind of quasi-paying for it is going to get you in at the last second. There's no hope in reincarnation. You know what reincarnation would do? All it would do is serve for you to have more opportunity to take more rocks and heap them on the pile. It doesn't deal with the massive pile of rocks. Maybe you're a butterfly, so you're taking pebbles and dropping them. I'm not sure how that would work. But reincarnation, all it does is to serve to heap up more time to have more judgment dumped on you. How about good life, good works, a pilgrimage somewhere, constant prayer, effort on our part? This doesn't work in a court of law. This doesn't work in the court of God. In a court of law, if I murdered someone this week, I wasn't at a pastor's retreat, but I murdered someone. I took their life. And I was caught, and I was brought to trial, and I was standing before a judge. And the family of the people that I murdered are sitting in the courtroom. And I say, Judge, it's true that I murdered them. I can't deny it. The blood's on my hands. However, that was Monday. Tuesday, I joined the Peace Corps. Wednesday, I wrote tons of letters to our troops and encouraged them. Thursday, I helped 27 old ladies across the street. Two of them were blind. You see where I'm going with this? Ludicrous. 
the judge is just going to slam his gavel down and say, pipe down. None of that matters in dealing with the blood on your hands. So it is with our sin and our wrongdoing. I can't imagine, and I've studied this a long time, you can't imagine how we have been an affront to a holy God. We sang a song last week, What Do I Know of Holy? And the thought is that we have barely dipped our toes in the holiness of God. If you stand at the water's edge of the Pacific Ocean and you look out and you just try to imagine how far that is and what you can personally experience, that may be a drop in the bucket of how it is that we can experience the holiness of the majesty of God and how we have offended and how we have come against that. So do not put your hope, do not, do not base your eternal destiny on your good works, on your efforts, on the things that you can accomplish. The Bible says it quite plainly. The best of our righteousness is like filthy rags to a holy God. The best we could possibly muster the most sincere that we could dance or sing or proclaim or write or accomplish is utterly corrupt because it's in the flesh. Uh, The fourth one would be karma. I heard this on The Amazing Race this last Sunday night. People throw out this idea of karma kind of ha-ha, wink, wink. But I think it's a really lame attempt to, to, to make sense of the universe and to, and to make decisions on saying, should I do this to this person that's totally wrong or should I not? And someone kind of throws up like a coin toss karma comment. Well, uh, we want good karma, so don't do it. Now, they've just based their strategy on how to win a million dollars on the amazing race based on this word karma. I think that's kind of lame. People live their life basing on karma. Saying that if I do enough good, it's really a works mentality. Do you see it? If I do enough good over here, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back and, and pay me back as good over here. If I do wrong over here, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back and, and pay me back as wrong over here. That's being tossed here and there by winds of doctrine. And it's no foundation to put your hope on. I want to read for you the words of just a song that I, I really believe God gifts His church with all kinds of lyrics and songs. And one of the things you'll find in Neighborhood Bible Church is um, I, for one, love uh, two electric guitars on stage. That's just a blast for me. I love the relevant, heart-connecting worship that goes on in this place. And for me, one of the passions is that we don't lose Hundreds of years of amazing lyric that's been gifted to the church. Now, here's one that's actually not so old, but it's one I grew up with. On Christ the Solid Rocks is this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And here's the refrain. On Christ the Solid Rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. 
In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. I want to invite the band up. We're going to respond with some music right now. We'll touch some more on the grace of God, but a few closing comments about this grace that God has lavished upon us. Not dribbled on us, but lavished on us. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that it is impossible for you, when you are covered by the sacrificed Passover lamb, to out-sin the grace of God. If that isn't reason to celebrate and sing this morning, I don't know what is. After understanding the truth that God has a plan, it's been revealed, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ, and that I can be in sync with both of those, what else do we need? What else do we need that we think that's going to make us happy? That's going to fulfill us? Our prayer ought to be, God, I want to be in the middle of your plan. I want to get on board with your plan. And I want to be in sync with Jesus Christ. Romans 5.20 says this, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love the idea of the word of grace and the lavishing grace of God like waves on the shore. They just don't end. I go to the beach all the time and wave after wave after wave after wave of God's mercy and grace are available to us, are present in our life. And some of you can shake your head this morning with a profound nod because you're tasting of it right now. Here's the response I want to leave you with. I've left you with some community group questions that I want you to wrangle through this week in group. If you're not in a group, I'd encourage you to get involved in one. They just started up this week. Brand new fall season. Here's here's the two thoughts I want to leave you with. You and I are more evil than, than we can possibly imagine. And at Calvary, it was manifest. And daily, grace upon grace, it's displayed that you and I are loved beyond what we would scarcely hope to even believe is possible. I would hope that the truth of this statement would settle and sink into our hearts and lives in such a way that number two could be possible. That this one radical, unalterable, verifiable, objective truth forever determines the course of the rest of your days. That this wouldn't be just something that you learned in Sunday school and it's kind of a cornerstone of what you've attached your name to. Oh, I'm a Christian. Therefore, I think we believe this about us when we die. But this would be driven so deep down into you that you're utterly convinced of it. And that come what 
may, if darkness hides his face, if the storms blow in, your feet are standing on solid rock and you know whose you are. And you know the inheritance that you have. And so that you have an undivided heart that's after God. Would you close your eyes and pray with me? God, we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 107 that says this, Oh, give thanks to you, the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And God, right now, with all that we are, we want to cry back to you the wonder and the awe that we feel and sense and know because of your grace shown to us in the death of Jesus Christ. We are the redeemed people of God. And we're convinced of it. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would fall heavy on those who are not convinced of this truth this morning. Let there be no shame in coming forward and saying, I've, I've half-heartedly believed some things that someone else taught. I know this to be true now. I've half-heartedly pursued some things I thought were Christian, but I want to know, is this really true? Is this what's really going on? God, we desperately need you from start to finish in our life of faith. And so we call out to you, come through on your promise to see us through, Lord. Uphold those who this morning walked in here with doubt, that they would know that they are loved beyond the shadow of any doubt. And that they'd walk out of here, God, encouraged and strengthened and filled in a way that only you can. And God, we want to praise your name right now in song because you're worth it. And it's in the unblemished, sacrificed lamb who was our scapegoat, Jesus Christ, that we pray. And all God's people said...